Chapter Five of Human Toll by Barbara Bainton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. In the autumn, that melancholy avenue to the dreaded winter, the subtle shadow of the infinite enthralled this bush girl, for the South was in her blood, and she loved the sun, and sighed regretfully as daily it sank earlier to lighten God's fireside. Bravely she did battle against the deciduous fate of her future sheltering it in a warm corner where no wind could come but inexorably the season demanded its toll till the plant was leafless and bare then she with an inward shiver laid it aside for its frozen sapless sleep in solitary mood she would wander to the gloomy hills at this season the dismantling wind in its greedy intent to disrobe the bush seemed to have designs even on the impregnable evergreens she would watch this bluff, invisible shepherd winnow a variegated leaf-flock, garner it assiduously, then drive it on before, whither she in sympathy would almost as speedily follow, only to see it, by this capricious captor, cruelly scattered. Ah, but she knew the wind's master, those hill-set rocks. Let it blow and beat against them as it might, there they stood, unaffected, unafraid. But how she feared them! One, the flat rock lay like a vault, and under it, buried in its sudden fall, was said to be a mob of blacks. Suppose they were not killed, and were merely hiding, waiting to catch some unprotected one, preferably a little girl. With ears straining and starting eyes she would hover near it. Her fear peopled and animated even the steep upright rocks, and from their pinnacles and turrets and towers faces with shaggy brows hiding malignant eyes looked down frowningly at hers, turned in magnetic awe up to them. At such times a falling leaf, for the wind in league now was still, meant a lurking human danger to her. A bird's sudden flight signified such discovery, its silence being akin to hers, for since the Sunday of the storm she had met all dangers silently. Even the waving grass betokened the stealthy steel of a snake. Yet often, very often, she braved them, all but one. The noiseless creeping of the cold shadows of winter sunset. Never must that lifeless shroud fall on her. Seeing her fleeing wildly from it, her face, white with fear, turned over her shoulder, watching the pursuing shadow, one galloped swiftly after her, calling reassuringly. She saw and heard, but undeterred she fled the faster, as though from double danger in double fear. "'God, to see her run, and from nothing that I could see,' he said. These wintry nights, if she turned from the fire and the beguilement of Jim's songs, to shudderingly look outside at the frosty moonlit world, Andrew's prediction that their waiting pints of water would be all ice in the morning was often a little consolation. But there were other nights, wild and stormy, when the moon had gone to another town, and every star was dark side down, and when the wind, while she slept, had left the she-oaks by the river to moan forebodingly round the house. Waking, she would for comfort light her candle, but it was only a feeble flame, wind-driven in the blustering darkness, nor could covering her head keep out the sound of the humanly howling tempest. Andrew she wanted and he, though uncalled, almost as often came, lessening by his presence her fear of the outer violence, and comforting her with the assurance that the deluging rain meant an earlier spring, 
which prematurely she watched for. "'Spring'll soon be here now, Ursie,' one day said Jim, after the consolatory manner of Andrew. "'I see a cat and dog flower upon the hills to-day.' "'Where? What hill, Jim?' she demanded eagerly. He gave a comprehensive sweep that took in the world's circle, but she, of great faith, sought earnestly, and none were more surprised than he, when after many days' search she returned with a precocious specimen of those tiny orchids. Joyfully, yet tenderly, she had gathered this solitary harbinger of spring, well knowing that the cold hillside would in a few weeks be carpeted with them. With the spring she had brighter moods that carried her to the side of some flower-flecked slope. Among the blossoms she would lie content, but for vying with them for the honey kiss of the transitory butterfly, busy garnering the wild flower seeds for God. Then the distant rock-garrisoned hills became castles, homes for angels. From their breath, the clouds, she peopled the sky, for to hold her there must be a human strain. The bluebell's mission was to summon the flower-folk to church. Gently swaying it, she would assemble her perfumed flock, and in whispers, soft as the breezes, tell them of duty divine. So, imbued and resolute for righteousness, she would go homeward. One afternoon, passing Granny Foreman's cottage, she stopped to watch her thriftily gathering seed from balsam, stock, and four o'clock. The butterflies gather the wildflower seeds for God, Granny. Deeds they doesn't. They fills their bellies with the honey, bleated Granny blastingly. Partially disillusioned, Ursula stood regarding the prosaic old woman thoughtfully till the intermittent blare of Ashton's circus, rumbling down the hilly roads, caught her ear. She ran and joined the mob who had turned out to honour its coming. The tinkling cymbal and sounding brass of its itinerant band stared her strangely. Heedless of everything, she followed with the barefooted, bareheaded children of the street, till it disappeared into the capacious backyard of Pat the Jew's livery stable. "'Wait!' said Nellie Lewis, the shoemaker's big-mouthed daughter, points of light blinking from her porcine eyes. "'Wait and you'll all see em pitchin' their tent over on the flat.' Obediently, Ursie waited, and a gratified thrill widened her eyes and warmed her heart when, among the great actors about to pitch the tent, she recognised Jim. An exalted flush tingled over her body as he, no way puffed up by his artistic employment, recognised and beckoned her with one long dirty finger to come within whispering distance. "'See Fanny, Ursie, and tell her to come and hang around about here tonight and I'll get her in.' "'Me too, Jim?' "'Yes,' promised he. Never would the girl forget that night, with its tinselled and spangled glories. She had never danced a step in her life, but that experienced girl, capering with circus grace in the highland fling, would, she knew, be as nothing to her given such inspiriting music. Were she but the daring equestrian jumping through the flaming hoops, little would it matter to her if her gauzy skirts did catch. Death before the wonder-held eyes of such a throng would be painlessly sweet. She had been a stride old Kushler led by Jim, and a mild trot had been an ideal, but she felt that the maddest freaks of those circling horses could not unseat her now, if the band played while she dared. She sighed heavily, for alas, her wonderful potentialities were known only to herself. 
Lucky, lucky Kate Ashton to enjoy this triumph, and she so big and tall, yet as the billpost is said, only seven. But of course, living always with such clever people, how could she help being big and clever for seven? Never for a moment could she be sad with the clown continually saying such funny things or cutting such curious capers. Her mind tragically focused the cruel contrast between the morrow Sabbath programme for the bespangled circus girl and herself. She, seated between her aunt and Mr. Civil, now retired from the ministry on a pension, listening to the wind, for it was autumn, howling vengefully round the porch, while this envied, bedight girl, eating her manifold chocolate gifts, would merrily go forth to further triumphs, laughing at the clown so philosophically funny, despite the cruel ringmaster's whip-cuts. Ah, to be one of them! Tears shrouded her sleepless eyes, and her introspection made her oblivious to the fact that the circus arena was emptying of the actors. Jim, seeing and misinterpreting her evident sorrow, remarked that, the old circus company is a rogan lot of robbers. It's only a little after ten, and here's the bees pullin' down the tent about our ears, cuttin' it short because of it bein' only there one night. It was even so, for with indecent haste and indifference to the vehemently disapproving waiting audience, the circus men began to untie the ropes, and amongst the last Ursie went out sorrowfully in the rear of Fanny. But not the circumstances of the unduly ended performance, dismantled pole, nor Jim's loud assertion, "'Sep me God! I've seen better circus among the blacks on the Warrago!' could take the ambitious taste from Ursie's unsatiated mouth. Oh, to be one of them, with the clown, merry, smiling, and whip, oblivious for an uncle, instead of Mr. Civil! She sighed hopelessly, for difficulties great and unconquerable, stood between her and these light-hearted folk of the tinsel and spangles. At dawn next morning she climbed on her bedroom roof to verify that the glory she saw on the night before had not been dreamed. Like dutiful Lot, unremembered but for his daring wife, she saw a cloudy mist going up to heaven, nothing else. Her mighty had flown, but they had taken her heart with them to that great world beyond these hills and near the sea. Soon as the opportunity was hers, she took from the sitting-room shelf a shell, and placing it against her ear, she listened to its sea call to her. The river suited best this mood, for it led to the sea, and thither she went, nor could she be found that morn for church. Fasting, she crouched, in hiding even from Andrew, beneath the she-oaks bordering the bottomless hole that had trapped Henry McGrath. But the oak's dirging melody no longer moaned for him. Today she caught her own sad reflex in their shivering lament. Gratefully she crooned with them, so inimitably, that old Christine Inglis, on her way to early mass, vowed the girl was fay. Hopelessly her eyes flitted from point to point that in brighter days and moods had given her distraction, if not pleasure. Today, in accord with her, they were suitably somberly shrouded. They, of course, would change, but not again could she. Henceforth no music for her in the bush-bird's minstrelsy, no pleasure in rivalry with buttercups for the butterfly's kiss. They and the flowers might all go, die, anything, even before their mutually hated winter came. All seasons would now be alike to her widowed heart.
End of chapter 5